getting into this outdoor job and working with wildlife and educating people and them having the time of their lives out there, it was something that actually made me happy. Every day waking up was just stoked to go to work. And we're going to start doing this again in a couple months and it's going to be the exact same. Waking up stoked to go to work. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. here with Mark Phillips. Hey, and Mark, we've known each other for quite a few years now, but five. Yeah, five, I think. But we're just we're just starting to hang out like homies. Kick it off. Play some disc golf. Me and my voice. That's right. <laughs> so I just started eating smoked heron herring, thanks to Mark's great success. I was introduced to that via my girlfriend's mom when she mailed us smoked herring, so I passed that on to you. You are a bear guide in the summers. Uh-huh. What are you in the winters? Winters always varies. It's a seasonal-ish kind of lifestyle because I've kind of slowed down a little bit. But my winters is varied from going, doing nothing at all, traveling around, going to Montana and working down there for a winter season. This last winter, I stayed in Ketchikan, and I continued working for Taquan in the hangar and learning a lot about these float planes doing that, but it always varies what I do in the winter. I don't know what I'm doing next winter. I don't know what I'm doing a week from now. Job-wise, I know what I'm doing, but... Tell me about this last winter. You're working at the hangar. What was your job? Last winter's pretty sweet. I... Uh, Went in after the bear season stopped, and I went into the hangar, and I started asking my boss, Paul, who's a total badass and knows everything you need to know about these planes, and I asked him, like, hey, can I kind of hop in here and push a broom and do whatever? And he's like, uh, yeah, sure. I go back, and I ask him, hey, like, is that position still open? He's like, yeah, sure, we can probably get you in. And he pulls me aside, and we're walking down the hallway, and he's like, you know this job, like, is not that great like it's just you're gonna be sanding and pushing a broom for hours on end and it's grueling and not a lot of people leave because they hate it and I'm like that sounds great <laughs> let's do it and so got in there they did suck at first it's just you got a sander in one hand and you're on the side of a plane for about 10 hours and you're sanding around rivets taking as many 30 second breaks as you can because you got to take off your mask and breathe every once in a while and it's a lot of that, um, a lot of rigorous work, and then once they see that you're able to put up with that, they'll start teaching you more stuff and teaching you more stuff. But I like it a lot. It's working with these old World War II planes. I used them a lot in Vietnam and stuff, and we still use the planes to date. A lot of the planes in the hangar are mid-1956 or so, 1950s through the 60s, and we still use the same parts and same techniques as when they were building these planes and replacing parts. If you need a new oil cooler for a plane that was manufactured in 1956, you gotta get an oil cooler that they used in those dates. So there's different companies that make those parts and ship them in. I don't know how the logistics of all that works and everything, but it's a, it's a fun job. There's days where I don't look forward to it at all, but there's been plenty of days where I'm stoked going in there and being like, I don't know what the hell I'm gonna do today. And then I get assigned a task, and I do that, or either learn how to do something and try and perfect that. Your boss tried to talk you out of it. Why did you want the he job? Was, he was more so warning me. He's like, sure, you want to do this? And I was like, well, I don't know what it is, so I'll try. I know I'm a hard worker, and uh, now I'm glad I did it. Why did you want the job? I... I wanted to stay with the company. I like the company a lot. I like the people I work with. Um, so it was more of an easier way, like 
I know if I just ask around the company for some winter work, someone's going to find something for me. And that's basically what I did. Um, like I said, I like learning about these planes. I like being around them, even when I'm just doing bare stuff during the summer. It's my commute to work. I love flying in these planes. I love being around them and just asking pilots different stuff. And now I get to be in the shop asking the maintenance workers, what's this, what's this, what's this? And I get to learn a lot more. I don't know what I'm going to do with the information. My boss wants me to find, sign into an AMP program, which is um, airframe and power plant. Power plant being the engine and all that. And I'm like, like I told you, I don't know what I'm going to be doing <laughs> next year. So why sign up for that now? What about the winter before? Last winter, me and my girlfriend, Ashley, went down to Montana. We were working through the summer. I was doing the bear thing. She was waiting tables. And summer was kind of winding down. And we've got one of our dear friends, Hiram, and his wife, Paulina. And they were working. They were going to a ski resort. And we were all trying to hone in on one ski resort to all go to to work at because we kind of go back a couple of years. And they were going to some ski resort in Washington. I can't remember the name. And then they were like, well, we'll apply at Big Sky too and see if we can all get jobs there. And we ended up getting jobs in Big Sky. And Hiram and his wife ended up going Crystal Mountain. That's what I was thinking of. But they ended up going to some other resort. But I wanted to go to a ski resort because I grew up snowboarding. I went to college for a very, very brief moment in Tahoe and did a lot of snowboarding there. So I wanted to do snowboarding again. It was an old hobby that I wanted to pick up on. So we went down there and I got to snowboard every day. I liked it a lot. Uh, my job wasn't so hot. I didn't like doing that. Ashley found a nice job that she enjoyed doing and made a lot of money doing. I taught her how to snowboard. She picked it up pretty fast and did pretty well. But I went there to snowboard and I probably snowboarded six out of seven days of the week while we were there. And that was the reason I went down there. I probably, if I did it again, I'd find a different job on the resort. But What was your job? I was a security officer, which is not fun at all. It was a lot of nights, a lot of 5 p.m. to 3 a.m.s of doing nothing. Um, in the snowboard community, there's a lot of like sort of flipping off and picking on authority, like whatever, we're kind of snowboard bums. And so whenever I'd have to respond to anything, it was just like, what's up, ball cop? Like, what are you going to do? The only responsibility or thing I could do to take action was, well, I, I can call the cops. It's like, yeah, anyone can call the cops. So it was really lame. It was a lot of office work, but like I said, it started at 5.30, so I could wake up at 10 in the morning, snowboard till 5, change, go to work, work till 3 in the morning, sleep until 10, snowboard till 5, and that was just repeat for about four and a half months straight. How did you find out about that job, or how did you find out about the like location in Montana? Um, it was, so Boyne Resorts has Crystal Mountain. Another Boyne Resort in, I can't remember the state that Hiram worked at, but another Boyne Resort was in uh, Big Sky, Montana. And like I said, we sort of threw out a blanket application to all the resorts, and then our friend Hiram and his wife got hired at one. This other resort was interested in me and Ashley, and we just took any job that was coming because we didn't know what we were going to do for work in the next coming months, so we just took whatever we could. They had employee housing if you can call it that. It was an old hostel from like the 70s that they just sort of refurbished and called it employee housing. Still took rent out of your paycheck and made you live in a place half the size of this kitchen with just a bathroom, small bathroom and a sink, unable to cook anything. A tiny, tiny, tiny little fridge that you can kind of put food in. There's nowhere to shop because Bozeman was a two-hour bus ride away. So you had to shop at resort prices. You're already making no money working at the place, and then you'd have to go buy, like, $24 Benadryl because you have allergies, <laughs> and it would just set you back. It was terrible. You were living in a place about half the size of a normal dorm room. <laughs> yeah. And 
you know, getting the shakedown from snowboard bums. Yeah. But it was a successful season because you were doing what you set out to do six out of seven days, just snowboard. That's exactly it. And like I said, Ashley got bust her heart. She was down for it. Um, I said I wanted to go do it. And she was like, sure, sounds good. And uh, we did what we sent out to do. And after that, probably about halfway through the season, we started counting down the days till we can get back to catch can. March 28th um, was our fly-off date, and it started getting closer, and we were getting itchy feet waiting to get back here. I started working immediately when I got back, and um, no, that was a good time getting back in catch can, getting back into the groove. I miss this town. Okay, so how many years have you been coming to catch can? I started coming to catch can in. 2012. I know I was 19 when I moved up. At the very end of 19, I turned 20 pretty close after moving up here. But I've been coming up since 2012. I know I took a year or two off because I was living in Portland and Portland, Oregon, and Eureka, California for a hot second. And then had to move back to California for some family complications. And then once that all started slowing down, I shot straight back up here. So I know I came up here in 2012, 13, um, 14 off, and then 15 came back up. So I think I took a year off. 15 came back up, and I've been steady ever since. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember talking to um, Shannon and her saying... Oh yeah, you you know Mark and Justin, my favorite seasonals. They're not here this summer, but when you meet them, <laughs> I was like, I don't know these yahoos. Like, you've only known me a week. That's why they were your favorites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we got along with Shannon really well. I haven't seen her in a hot minute. All right, you come up to catch a can, x amount of years. What got you into catch a can in the first place, and then into this uh, seasonal living situation? Um, my, I was like a pre-seasonal before I was doing very small moving and like kind of getting my feet wet and different stuff, but, um, moving up to Ketchikan, I was 19, like I said, and I was being a bum down in Florida for a real quick minute. And then that failed, came back to California, crashing at my mom's place. And I got a call from my dad. And he says, well, I was just talking to this guy and at a cocktail party. And we got on the topic of kids, and I asked him what his kid did. And he asked me what mine did, and we got on the topic of you. And I said, well, he's not really doing much right now. He's just kind of chilling in California, crashing at his mom's place. And then his buddy said, well, I own a couple restaurants up in Alaska. If you want to send him up, I've definitely got work for him. And so... My dad called me the next day after that cocktail party, asked me if I wanted to come up here. I said, well, tell me the name of the town. I'll think about it. I get off the phone. I look up Ketchikan, didn't even know how to spell it. Uh, looked up the Wikipedia, some YouTube videos, kind of looked at them. And I called my dad back, I think like 30 minutes later. And I was like, if you buy me a ticket, because I have no money, if you buy me a ticket up there, I'm down. And uh, flew up here. Got off the plane, my dad's friend picked me up, and we took the ferry over. He let me stay at his hotel for 30 days. It wasn't really the busy season, so we had a room, and I was sort of a family friend now. Let me stay at his hotel for 30 days and said after that, like, you're on your own. He gave me a job. And I stayed at his hotel for probably three weeks, and I found a friend that was at an apartment that was a little bit too big for her. Uh, one of my best friends, Tony, and I lived on her living room floor with an Amazon-ordered living room divider with a blow-up twin mattress. No, it was a pool inflatable, one of those, like, riveted ones, <laughs> ribbed ones, and I lived on that in her living room floor, and, uh... Ribs for your privacy. Yeah. <laughs> the good old white Japanese room divider that separated us. But it was a it was a hell of a summer. I worked as I was 20 at the time, so I couldn't bartend or serve. 
So I was a busboy for the first six to seven hours of the day, and I was a line cook at another restaurant for the last eight hours of the day. So I was doing 14-hour days back to back to back to back to back for the entire cruise ship season and got done with that season at around end of early October or so and I had been so focused on work I had hardly been paying attention to anything and partying with friends I got out of that summer I was 20 years old and I had about ten to eleven thousand dollars in my bank account and I'm like oh, holy hell didn't really realize how much you can save away living in a small town and just working your ass off and after that I brought uh, my buddy Justin up he fell in love with it too I didn't earn as much money that summer because I was 21 at the time kinda of blew it all running around town ended that season with just a couple thousand and then the rest is history just coming back and coming back and coming back so <clears throat> you ended your first summer up here with ten to eleven grand in the bank. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of this, zero. You <laughs> right, zero. Not even not even enough to no. buy the ticket up. But my question is, you said that you were in Florida bumming around. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, I got out. Right, dropped out of college. It's hardly even dropped out. I feel like I just went to like orientation. I was like. No, I lasted a couple weeks. I figured this isn't really for me right now in my life. And sort of dropped out of that, went back to... How'd you decide that? I just fail everything. You'll figure it out. How, how do you fail everything in two weeks? I don't know. I just stopped going. I was in Tahoe. I got a snowboard pass from my girlfriend's parents at the time. And I just started snowboarding every day. Every day I woke up, well, you could go to North Star. Or you can go to class. I'm 18. I'm going to go snowboard every day. Easy choice. Yeah. So uh, kind of failed out of college. Didn't have enough money for my rent in Tahoe. Moved back home. Uh, got dumped from this girl and sort of started having super panic attacks. Didn't want to be in this town anymore. Everything reminded, of, everything reminded me of my cringy ass high school years. And I just hated being in the, that town. Where was, where was it? Oh, God. The saddest place on earth. Vacaville, California. Right off I-80. Population, I think, 80,000. It's just... Uh, what is it? Cookie-cutter home after cookie-cutter home. Over and over. And then you can't find anything but chain restaurants or fast food. It's the saddest place on earth. And so you went to Florida, which Yeah, is... I got a phone call from my brother, and he was in the military. He was on leave down in Key West, Florida. He made some friends, and I had recently learned how to sail via my uncle. Learned how to sail up in Washington on the Snake River on the border of Idaho. So I had some sailing experience. I liked it a lot, and my brother befriended these sailors down in Florida, and he started talking to them and said, called me and said, well, if you go down to Florida, I've got these sailing buddies that you could probably get some work through. And I said, that sounds cool. And I had enough money for a little flight to Florida. I think I was still 18 at the time. I might have been 19. Bought a ticket to Florida, started talking with this girl he was talking about who worked at the sailing company. Got down there. She let me crash on her couch for a while. Um, it was a lot of fun. I didn't have any money, nor did I make any money. I was sort of just a volunteer on this big-ass sailboat. It was a 19th century double-mast schooner. Learned how to rig it up and stuff, and we did sunset and morning cruises for the tourists down there. And I was sort of just in a volunteer position day after day after day. I was down there for about two months. Did not earn a single dime the whole time I was down there. And uh, something happened between me and this girl, and she started to not like me any, anymore. It was a completely platonic relationship. She liked my brother. And he sent me down there as uh, some help for her, 
and she started something was happening in her brain or something and she just was like I'm not down with this guy crashing on my couch which I totally understood uh, but it was that or be homeless so I would maximize my time outside of the house and I would just come in during the night and like crash on the couch and then just leave in the morning and uh, the volunteer apprenticeship kind of thing sort of fell through there was no jobs that were going to be open that I was training for so they kind of just stopped training me and said you don't really need to come in because there's not going to be a position I was like, all right, cool. So I just ended up starting to be homeless in Florida, which was rad. <laughs> Not really. Uh, I got gifted this little beach cruiser bicycle with a basket on the front. And with having zero money, I just started going to oyster bars, which are like every block down there. And I would steal all their saltine crackers and throw it in the basket of my bicycle. And I lived off saltine crackers, and I would pick up change and buy green apples from the store. Eventually, it completely broke down, and I was like, I can't do this. And uh, I grabbed a piece of cardboard from a dumpster and had a permanent marker that I borrowed from this restaurant, and I wrote Miami on it, and I hitchhiked from Key West all the way up to Miami. It took me one day and about four to six different hitchhiking rides because it's a bunch of bridges going to Miami uh, a couple rides to go up to Miami I got to the airport with no ticket or plan so I got to the airport eventually called my brother and said I need a plane ticket back to California and he's like oh, okay he's in the military he had some money and I said I'll only accept the cheapest ticket to go back to California and it was like I don't know 70 to 100 dollars less to book the ticket like seven days out and I said that's the one I want I'm not I'm only gonna accept the cheapest one so I lived in the Miami airport for about a week with no money I'd go to Dunkin Donuts at 3 in the morning and grab their donuts that they were throwing away and I'd sit outside the airport and bump cigarettes off new people that have never seen me before because it's an airport so it kind of worked out um, you can refill your water, bo water bottle there, and I had a little pickup tent that I used as a blanket. It was awful. <laughs> well, so what did you eat? I ate Dunkin' Donuts that they would throw away the expired donuts at 3 in the morning. I knew they did because I'd see them do it, and I would just go there at 3 in the morning. They'd be like, sure, sounds good. So donuts, water, cigarettes. Donuts, water, and cigarettes for about a week. It was funny. I flew back to SFO, San Francisco, in California, and Justin, uh, one of my closest buddies, picked me up at the airport, and I was starving. I smelled terrible. I had greasy hair. All my clothes were dirty, and I made him drive me to the nearest restaurant in Oakland, and I scarfed down probably three to four breakfast plates of food. <laughs> So, to sum it up, yeah, your brother met a girl, said, hey, I met these sailing dudes, they're cool, you go down there, you stay on her couch until she gets tired of you, because yeah. you're a worthless 19-year-old or 18-year-old, mm -hmm. you are homeless, essentially, other than that couch for four hours a night, yeah. you eat saltines, and that's pretty much it for... X amount of days. I did a lot of sailing. It was cool in that aspect. Yeah. Okay. And then you just, you d you go to Miami airport before you get a, a ticket. Yeah. Well, I knew it's somewhere that I could sleep that was indoors. <laughs> right. The okay. airport. Yeah. And, and so the, the reason that you went to Florida, which is a state that's just entirely built on strip, strip malls. Didn't know that. Because you thought <laughs> your hometown was too many strip malls and... Yeah. Development houses. Very true. Okay. And then, so you go back to California, and then this situation... I get the phone call from my dad, yeah. It, I got the phone call from my dad probably a month after that. Okay. And so you're home just long enough to remember what you hated about it. Yeah. And you're like, small town and I don't care which state, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> and you come up here, and one season removed from being homeless in Miami and homeless in the Miami airport and uh -huh. eating Dunkin or in Key West and in the Miami airport eating Dunkin Donuts at 3 a.m. Uh -huh. You've got 11 grand in the bank. 
Oh, yeah. Full social schedule. Not expecting it at all. Right. You accidentally fell into it. Yeah. And now you've been coming back every summer. I've been coming back. It, it was addicting. I got done with my first summer and I went back to Vacaville because my car was there. And I got back to Vacaville. I wanted to party and hang out with my friends. My entire growing up after I graduated from high school was just you're bored in the morning, get on your skateboard and just skate around town for hours and hours and hours. And once we discovered beer, it was just go skate and somehow get beer. And so I got done with my first season, went back to Vacaville, and I was like, I got so much beer money, I can skate forever. <laughs> that got boring pretty quick. I decided to fix up my old Pontiac, and my brother was telling me, hey, you hate Vacaville, why don't you come over to Virginia Beach? And so I fixed up my Pontiac, and I drove cross-country, Stopped by to see some family in San Diego, Arizona. My car blew up in Arkansas. Uh, my transmission essentially exploded and fell out of my car. And I got it towed to a transmission shop. And this guy could charge me whatever. I had money. I was in the middle of nowhere with a broken car. And so he charged me $2,200 to put a new transmission in my 1999 Pontiac Bonneville. He could have said anything. I would have paid it. Well, it sounds like you got pretty close. Yeah. No, I talked to people after that, and he's like, they should, he should have charged you $1,000 for that. Yeah. Um, so that took like a week. I crashed on my cousin's dorm room. Uh, God bless his heart. He helped me a lot. Got to Virginia. I worked for UPS for a little bit. Socked. It was miserable. Did and you wear then, the brown uniform? No. It was winter time, so I didn't have to wear the short shorts, and I was just a little helper, so... Santa's little I gotta tell you, listeners are pretty <laughs> upset that you, they can't imagine you in the short shorts. You can Photoshop me in one of those for the, the episode ad. Alright, well, we've got that on, <laughs> on tape. Um, Virginia Beach was kind of lame. I didn't like it too much. And then I just started thinking about it. It got closer and closer to April and I was like, I gotta get back to catch again. I gotta get back to catch again. So I stopped by California on my way back. I grabbed Justin. I said, you gotta come with me. He said, alright, cool. Uh, we flew up here, had a killer-ass summer. We've got a lot of stories that we still tell to this day, and it just be we didn't even know what seasonal meant. We just kept coming back every season, found something to do in the winter, and we'd come back here in the summer. When you were thinking in Virginia, I gotta get back to Ketchikan, what do you think it was exactly? Was it just the money? I was happier here. I hated Because Cal of the money? Yeah, it was just, it was just different enough. I didn't like Virginia Beach because it was just a watered-down California. A lot of the lower 48 towns. I hate traffic. I hate freeways. All that crap. I like the ambiance of the town. Yeah, I like the money. The money's awesome from the cruise ships, but I just loved coming back here. I remember my brother, we were sitting in a, we were driving on the freeway <laughs> in his red Toyota Tacoma, and I was in the back seat, and they started talking about like after the whole Christmas season, which is when UPS hired me, he's like, what are we gonna, what do you wanna do after that? But I remember telling him, well, I'm, uh, I'm probably gonna go back to Alaska. And he's like, what do you mean? You just moved all the way out here. And I'm like, yeah, I can move across country within a phone call, I don't care. I'm going back to catch a can. I've done it before. <laughs> yeah. It's a good feeling too. And that's what you chase. You, you remember that feeling of being somewhere you've never been before, even though I was coming back. But you remember the feeling of getting there, being stoked to be there. You're there for a reason, and it's just that over and over and over again. I had that in uh, Montana. I didn't know where the hell I was going. I didn't know what Bozeman, Montana was, which is the closest town. Um, got there and fell in love with Montana a little bit, besides my job being super shitty. Uh, it was a beautiful place. I'd go back there for a different reason, uh, a different job or something. But just the feeling of going somewhere and it's just a whole new dimension at some, at some sort of extent. So the question is, you talk about this draw to a new city or a new place. And I've heard it talked about as getting out of your comfort zone or, you know, the the freshness of a new place or challenging yourself to find your 
place in a new location. To you, what it, what do you think the essence of that urge is, or that that draw towards a new experience? It can be sort of shown in different lights. It can be sort of a romantic situation. You love moving to new places, discovering new things, or you can be running from a lot of stuff. I have super, super uh, anxiety. I've had depression for a long, long period of my early teenage years and going into years and years after that, and I just started to hate everything around me. Going into being a late teenager and just being so upset with my physical surroundings and being so anxious all the time and finding a different environment like Ketchikan or like Montana, it's finding somewhere for me that I just don't hate walking down the street. I love it here. I love walking down the street. I am sort of in the romantic light too. I like discovering new stuff, like how I discovered this place, and sort of figuring everything out, jumping down to a place and feeling like your feet really haven't touched the floor and you're still kind of figuring everything out. It's a fun feeling. It's a feeling that a lot of people should test themselves for doing. No, that was a lot of it for me was just finding somewhere where I feel more comfortable. So you're in these places and they're not what you want to be surrounded by. There's this dissonance happening between the location and your mind. And when you get to catch a can, all of a sudden... It's at ease. Yeah, it comes together. Yeah, I sync could, up. I could go visit friends down in Vacaville now. Some of my best friends I still have down there, my friend Frankie, my friend Dylan, and a couple others. Um, I could go visit them now. I'll have a good time with them, but... If I'm sitting in a car driving down Alamo Drive or North Monte Vista, I'd rather just drive that car into the nearest telephone pole. I'd hate it. <laughs> no, so it was, a, it was a lot of running away from that and finding somewhere that made me more comfortable. I love the people here. I found my amazing girlfriend that I have now here, and uh, we sort of stayed our last winter here, sort of cuddling up and taking it easy. And it's been an amazing winter. I am looking forward to summer this year. Getting some of that cruise ship money. Winter money is kind of slow, but I'm looking forward to that. Okay, so the summer comes around, and now you've gone from when you started out, you were at a restaurant. You did that for a while. Now you have Big Daddy Job, Papa Pump, the Bear Tour Guide. (laughs) You get to carry a giant gun around and show tourists these thousand plus pound animals tell me about that i first came up here like i said i was a bus boy and then a line cook and then the next summer i was 21 and i started bartending and serving and that money is phenomenal as you know and a lot of our friends know you can make some bank doing that and i did that for a long time worked at a couple different places started doing that doing that over and over and found this one place i was working at and this would be my last bartending job to come. I was working there and something went awry in management and they just let me go on a whim and I was sort of just left stuck. It was May, cruise ships were just coming in and I was let go so I didn't have a job and so I started looking around and I'm freaking out and freaking out and I'm going through the paper and I see Bear Guide. And I'm thinking, what the hell is that? Like, that sounds awesome. I've been in love with wildlife my whole life. I had whole magazine racks full of zoo books growing up. I went to an interview at Taquan and Tory Corn, bless his heart, uh, saw it in me. He interviewed a couple different candidates. I wasn't, I was confident, but not too confident. He emailed me back and said, let's do this. Let's get into training. He started me, we flew out to a little part of the island, same place that Jensen and Drew works at too. We're all coworkers out there. I just had this overwhelming sense of like, this is, I'm way happier doing this than bartending. I had a lot of demons in bartending. There's a lot of 
different attributes that go along with that that you can fall into and I sort of fell into those but getting into this outdoor job and working with wildlife and educating people and them having the time of their lives out there it was something that actually made me happy every day waking up was just stoked to go to work and we're gonna start doing this again in a couple months and it's gonna be the exact same waking up stoked to go to work it's not so much happening right now but it never happened when I worked in bartending it just wasn't for me I love the money I love the day checks besides paychecks but the work environment wasn't for me tell me what a normal day is as a bear guide um, it's different via companies, but for me, it's uh, usually waking up 5.30, because you can have a 6.15 flight going out. Um, for my specific company, we fly me out before any of my clients that go out. A lot of, that, a lot of other companies fly their guide out with their people. But they fly me out before, so I wake up go to uh, headquarters, get my flight time, get the plane that I'm flying out into, fly out to uh, Trader's Cove, and usually hang out there for about an hour, because the plane's got to fly all the way back to Ketchikan, get the six people, they're making the money on six people, besides flying five people and me out there. So they fly back, get the six people, then fly them back to me, that takes about an hour, and I love that. I fly out, get my own private plane in the morning, get out there, chill out on a dock, read a magazine, do whatever. The Seasonals magazine. The Seasonals magazine. Buy it now, $50 a year. <laughs> chill out there, and then I hear my little uh, de Havilland engine coming in, and they drop off six people. We go hike down a little nature trail. We get to a stream, and there's typically bears crawling around everywhere. It's a big waterfall that holds all these salmon waiting to get up the river in. And the bears know that year after year after year. And there's usually bears there and it's usually about 10 minutes of awe and then some people coming up and asking questions. I educate him going down the trail and I educate him coming back up the trail. There's a lot of questions. I've had 10,000 bear questions asked to me. Uh, sometimes you just bullshit the answer of what you think and then most of the time it's you know the answer. I do four of those in a day. So I drop those six people off, I get six more on the plane coming in that is going to take them out. So we do a little overlap, four in a day, and at the end of the day I see those people off, I get my own plane on the way back into town, and then it's rinse and repeat seven days a week from June until September. I love it. Yeah. It sounds like an awesome job. So, you just went from serving, saw it in the paper, and boom. It cut. was it was uh, the meeting of the moons, or whatever the hell they call that. But, no, if I didn't get let go from that job, I probably never would have found that bear guiding. I probably just would have set in for the rest of the summer. Probably would have done it the next summer. Still not been that happy. Just doing it for the money. But, if I didn't get let go from that job and found that in the newspaper and hooked up with the homies from Taquan. What are what about the like financial side of the bear tour guide? Give me give me the grizzly details. The grizzly details. It's roughly the same amount of money bartending. Doing what I like to do. It's a very short time though. It's about mid-June, early June if we're lucky, usually around June 10th to around September 20th or so. Seven days a week though, so there's no days off unless it's weather days and you can't fly out, it's unsafe. Base pay is pretty decent to what you'd walk away, walk away with an average day of bartending and then there's a lot of tips on top so of like it. So like 400? Not for uh, the privileged asylum bartenders but so lower else, than that anywhere else yeah lower than that would be my base pay but there's a lot a lot of tips involved there's a couple different ways to hint at tips because we get a lot of foreigners sometimes I'll exit our little tour vehicle and I'll already be holding a 20 
like someone's already given it to me, and then I'll point at their plane coming in, holding the 20, and they'll say, why is he holding that 20? Oh, they tip here. It's usually just the foreigners that works on it. But uh, there's a lot of tips at the end of the day. So yeah, it can equal to around um, an asylum bartender's wage at the end of the day. So do you know how to get a Kiwi, a New Zealander, to tip you? I've heard it, but I forget it. I, I don't know if it's a joke, but you just, you just tell them, hey, this is the part where you tip. <laughs> I do get a lot of Australians, and uh, it becomes a headache when I get Big Bay looking down at the creek, and I'm like, sure, yeah, I don't know. Big Bay. Big Bay. <laughs> I've heard that so many times. And they, whenever you leave, they, they talk about chairs as you're leaving. It's like, what, what are they obsessed with chairs for? Chairs, yeah. Cheers. Cheers, mate. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, a lot of them don't tip, which whatever, do your own thing, I don't care. But yeah, I found that with Kiwis more, because they're not stingy, they'll, like, if, if it's like, hey, it's time to tip, they'll tip, but whereas Australians are like, yeah, I know it's time to tip, I'm just not going to. I can't to tell them apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've been there, you can. Yeah, no, I haven't, though. Sometimes I feel like I so you went from homeless in Key West to making money in Ketchikan. Mm-hmm. Now you've been making leaps and bounds into better jobs for you. You're happy here. You're happy with that job. What do you think are some of the big takeaways from these movements you've made or all these decisions that have culminated in where you're at now? What is something that you wish you could like go and tell that 18-year-old that's stealing saltines to get him here quicker? I had a moment in Washington when my uncle was teaching me how to sail. And like I said, super depressive, suicidal. And my uncle was talking to me and I was talking to him about how I felt that way. And I remember him telling me, saying that you don't see what you're actually worth in the light of other people. I grew up with a sister that had, still has, uh, cerebral palsy, and it's very severe cerebral palsy. She can't eat by herself or eat on her own. She can't walk, talk, fend for herself. My dad still takes care of her to this day and I'm her younger brother, so she's been in my life every single day that I was growing up. I remember him telling me, you don't realize that you've spent every single day of your waking life caring for someone who can't care for themselves. And it really took me back thinking, I have done that, and I haven't even looked back at that. So there's a lot of self-worth to 18-year-old me. It would be, you're not a piece of shit. All you need to do is get out of where the hell you are right now and you'll be a little bit happier. Try your hardest and work your ass off. And once you see the reward for that, once you see where it can take you, whether if it's working a seasonal job or if it's swimming through a flood in Phong Nha, Vietnam, it's always going to be worth it. Just try the best you can at it, and you're always going to come out better on the other end. You've been to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You've you've been flooded out Have in you? Vietnam. <laughs> I haven't. No. no. You've been close to Thailand. Yeah. Like Southeast Asia. I only got a little taste of the monsoon season, but I got a whole mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you traveled. You traveled over to Southeast Asia. What was that like? Uh, it was uh, awesome. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Me and my, my buddy Justin, we were winding down from the 2015 summer, and we're just sitting on pockets of money. We have no idea what to do. We have no idea where we want to go, but we know we want to go somewhere. And spend it. And spend it. Definitely want to spend it. And we'd like to get the most bang for our buck. So we thought, well, let's look up some rates on how the dollar goes the furthest. And we just started cruising around YouTube. We found some blogs, and we were thinking Thailand. We always wanted to go to Thailand. Uh, So we found somewhere close by, 
and we found this motorcycle tour you can do from north to south or south to north. You can either fly into Hanoi and go all the way to Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City or you can fly into Ho Chi Minh City and go to Hanoi. We had four weeks to do it so we really took our time. Uh, we got into Hanoi, we did north to south and we bought some motorcycles. Justin bought his via color and I bought mine via components and how worn out everything is. This didn't last that long. <laughs> Uh, we we started going east and we got to Halong Bay. We checked that out. I forget where we went after Halong Bay, but we started traveling together. We kind of we knew where we were go ending up at and we knew when we were flying out. So we decided, well, why don't we split? Kind of do our own thing. We're here for different reasons, and we'll meet up near the end. And it was an awesome choice because I really liked being in the middle of the jungle for eight hours, super uncomfortable on a shitty 110cc Honda Win from God knows when. In the middle of the jungle, just riding at 40 miles an hour, kilometer after kilometer. And uh, Justin took buses and went to some towns. He had an awesome time going to different towns and getting into different stuff going on. I, ch I chose the different route of just going in the jungle. I learned a lot. I met up with this different guy who lived in the Netherlands and he didn't have he didn't know a lot of English but he knew like six different languages and I started helping him with his English and we thought well there's some safety numbers we're going to the same place right now. We started hopping town to town and getting hostels together. His name's Dan. He's awesome. We, me and Justin ended up getting together at the very end in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City. We got our flights screwed up and we started yelling at the Chinese airlines. We couldn't figure it out. We got delayed another couple days stuck in Saigon, but it was an awesome trip. Like I, we started talking about this getting flooded in. We were in Phong Nha and we were there for monsoon season. We went in this cave on a little tour, came out, we started staying in the third story of this hostel, second story of this hotel, and then by the second day we were moved up to the third story of the hotel, and on the third day we were moved up to the fourth story. The water was just coming up, we, there was no power, we were completely stuck inside this building, and we drank all their alcohol, we were with a bunch of Australians, uh, they were partiers to the max. Eventually, the water never subsided, but some guy came around in a canoe and he decided to drove us, drive us to our little motorcycles which were parked a village away on a hill outside of the water. But it was an awesome trip. I'd definitely go back and do something like that again. It sounds wild. <laughs> yeah, it was a good time. Um, later on, started venturing to different places. Me and Ashley, she's got some family down in Mexico and we went back there, back down there two years in a row. Um, that's an awesome place. If I can recommend anyone going to Mexico and just get away from Tijuana or even Puerto Vallarta, get out of those places, go stay in a little bungalow in a tiny village and just hang out there for two weeks. You'll have a much better time. Do you You'll... speak any Spanish? No. I was very good at pointing and speaking very, very minimal Spanish. After going to Mexico, I started taking Spanish classes online, but it was useless. I wasn't in Mexico anymore. Yeah. I gave up on that. Just like college. What do you think is something that you've taken away from your international travels that you like think of every day that you wouldn't if you didn't do the, that traveling? My favorite thing from, I did a little travel through the Netherlands all the way to Hungary down the Rhine River with my mom. There's just so much history in different places. One of my favorite parts about going down the Rhine River on that cruise through Austria, Germany, the Netherlands, and Hungary is just, there's so many castles. And I'm a medieval nerd, so I loved all do doing that. But there's no castles here. There's so much stuff in different places. Down in Mexico, you just see how the town works. I was there for two months, so I got to see a lot of how the town works. 
most likely on the very, very surface level. But it's just different everywhere you go and just learning how the day flows in different places is awesome to witness and figure out and understand. And it gives you a lot of new insight on that you can go other places and figure out how it works though. How it works there and even just like Ketchikan. This town works a lot differently than Houston and you can come up here and learn about that and figure out that it's different in different places. A lot of people grow up in towns for 50 years and they just retire there. I've got friends that have parents that do that. Mm -hmm. And they look at the life that I have and they say, what the hell are you doing? They always comment on Facebook posts saying, it looks like you're doing great, sounds good. But when I was 18, I'm like, I'm going to Florida, that was a bad decision. Or I'm going to Alaska, like, what are you doing? And I'd come back and I'd say, what are you going to do now? And i say, I don't know. But I'm stoked about it. Mm. What is a nerdy medieval fact that you'd want everyone to know? It was, it's romanticized, but it was gross back then. Filthy. People died just from standard shit that you can just wipe away now. It was foul, but it was really cool. If I say, what's your favorite rap album? What's the first answer without looking? First answer without looking, I'd say because it's so overplayed and I know every single second of the album. Kendrick's DNA album, other than that, probably Deltron 3030. That, yes. would, be, that would be number two yes. off the top of my head. God damn, dude, I love you. Yes. You gotta upgrade your gray matter. Because one day it may matter. <laughs> well, Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking to you. I'm looking forward to an awesome summer hanging out. Of course. Yeah! That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. God damn this chair. It's missing a wheel. <laughs> <laughs>